Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. James Hannum to tell us all about his book just published um, titled The Globe, How the Earth Became Round, which is a really interesting history about how we came to know that the Earth is round rather than flat. Now, I think a lot of us, myself included, Uh, I certainly came into this going, oh, well, obviously I know that people used to think the earth was flat. And at some point they changed that belief. Honestly, I had never thought that much about kind of that progression of the idea. And I'm really glad now that I do know about the story, thanks to this book, um, because it is really quite interesting. So James, thank you so much for being on the podcast to tell us about it. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, before we dive into this history that you've detailed in the book, I was wondering maybe if you could introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this. Well, I uh, started off by doing a, uh, a, ba- a bachelor's degree in physics uh, many years ago, but then uh, I went into a, a career in accountancy. Uh, and after a few years of that, uh, always wanting to read about uh, the history uh, of science. I became fascinated by, uh, in particular, the history of science and religion, especially during the Middle Ages, um, and sufficiently passionate about it that, that I uh, took a fairly uh, long career break to do a PhD uh, in the history of science. Um, and then I wrote um, my first book, God's Philosophers, um, and that came out in 2009, um, I really enjoyed writing that, but um, I decided to go back to my um, professional job. Uh, but I have uh, continued to write in my spare time. Um, I find it's, it, it, it's a great thing to be what, what you might call academic adjacent, because I, I get to do book reviews and peer reviews. And people ask me to produce some academic chapters and things. And I also have the time to do some writing really on on anything that uh, I'd like to do. And when I became interested um, in the globe, uh, the history of the globe, um, 
it was it was great just to have the opportunity to write something about that for for general readers for people who uh, were like me who became passionate about history from from um, reading books rather than having done a degree in it. That's a lovely introduction, um, and I think does a great job of conveying kind of why this is such an exciting story. It, it makes a lot of sense to me that if you're excited about it, that comes through. Um, and one of the things that immediately sparked my interest starting the book was a claim you make pretty early on um, that the discovery that the Earth is a sphere to be, quote, humanity's first successful scientific theory, which is a way I'd never thought of it before. So could you tell us about why you think um, this discovery kind of counts in that way? Well, I, I don't want to get into uh, maybe the, the, the specifics of, of the philosophy of science, of what counts as a, as a scientific theory, although there's obviously a, a lot of interesting stuff that, that um, could, could be said about that. But I think that, uh, put, put simply, science is um, our investigations of, of how the world works in, in ways that aren't obvious. It, it has to go... It has to go beyond common sense, and really, the really great scientific theories—they they defy common sense. They can be—they can be counterintuitive. Um, there's nothing more counterintuitive than than the idea that um, the Earth um, isn't flat, that that it isn't the center of the universe, that it is in fact a sphere moving through space um, at, at, at very high speed. That's something that that you would find it extremely difficult to work out for yourself, and it's only by uh, looking at the evidence in a uh, particularly rigorous kind of way um, that we're able to demonstrate that a, that a theory like that might might actually be true, uh, and I think it's it's that it's that that rigorous way of of examining evidence beyond just how things appear to be at first sight that um, makes something into 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 a scientific theory rather than just something that everybody knows. Um, and and I think that that the discovery that the Earth is a sphere was the the first example, the first example I know of, certainly where where that had happened. There'd been lots and lots of speculation previously um, by uh, earlier Greek philosophers, thinkers uh, in 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 China and, and India as well about you know how the world might be structured, uh, how it might be shaped. Um, but they didn't really strike me as as necessarily being um, scientific uh, because th- the people who were developing those ideas were generally trying to develop them in order to uh, understand uh, the world in a way that's coherent with their um, with their existing worldview. Um, they, they would have had beliefs about how uh, human society should be uh, organised about about what's ethically right or wrong, and they would have thought that those things uh, very often they thought those things were were objectively true. So they expected to find them um, reflected back at them uh, in in nature. They expected nature to uh, really sort of comply with their idea of how things ought to be. Um, Whereas the globe struck me as a third theory, where actually somebody found um, when they were looking at the evidence um, that actually the Earth isn't the way that it ought to be. It ought to be flat. I mean, it, 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 that's just obvious. But 
Um, it's not like that at all. And that's, that's what I think makes it into the first example of, of, of a scientific theory, something which is truly um, counterintuitive. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it helps us now kind of dive into the history of the development of this idea, because with that counterintuitiveness, it's not like someone woke up one day, said this, and then everyone kind of went, oh, yeah, of course. Um, It was a bit more complicated than that. So why was it that it was the Greeks who became the first proponents of the globe theory? Well, I I first got into thinking about... um, the globe when I, I kind of got sidetracked um, while I was uh, writing more generally about um, ancient Greek science. And uh, I'd always been taught um, that uh, it was uh, Pythagoras in, in, in the 6th century BC who had first realised that the, the earth was a globe, and there really hadn't been very much question about it after that. Um, and I was, uh, began sort of digging into uh, the sources and, and, and more more up to date scholarship, and, and um, I found it was actually quite hard to explain how it was that the um, the Greeks had been in a position to make this this counterintuitive um, discovery. Um, but I think. Uh, the first thing that was very important was that was a, the fertile philosophical um, tradition that the pre-Socratic philosophers uh, had all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas about how um, the universe um, and and the earth um, were constructed. Um, one one of them felt that the the earth was was a, uh, the shape of a, a column barrel, and we were um, sitting uh, on on top of that. Uh, um, and another um, had suggested that the um, the Earth was um, a disc, which was was probably the most common view um, from from the, the age of Homer onwards, with the, the sky as a, as a great dome over the top. You could say that would be the traditional cosmology um, of the Greeks, um, but. Uh, at that point, uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers um, began to speculate more more widely. They um, suggested um, Anaxagoras um, being one of, one of the um, most most celebrated the pre-Socratic philosophers. Uh, he said that the Earth um, is in the the center of a spherical universe. And although he believed the Earth was a disk, because that was the standard belief at the time, at the beginning of the fifth um, century BC. Um, he noted that uh, if the universe was was a sphere, then the sun and the moon could pass underneath the Earth um, rather than having to disappear into the ocean, which is what um, the traditional Homeric belief had been. Um, and that meant that, that that if the moon was above the Earth and the sun was underneath the Earth, the moon could still be illuminated by the sun. Um, and that very profound idea... Uh, that the moon doesn't really have light of its own, that it is being um, illuminated by the sun, um, was something that uh, does seem to have been discovered for the first time by the um, by the ancient Greeks around about um, a bit after 500 BC. Um, Anaxagoras was then able to um, describe uh, how an eclipse happened. Uh, and how um, when there is an eclipse of the the sun, 
Um, that could be the moon getting in the way of uh, the sun's light. Um, and also, where there's an eclipse of the moon, that could be the earth getting in the way of the sun, so that the shadow that we see uh, on the moon during a lunar eclipse um, is actually a picture of of the the edge of the Earth, and and um, anyone who's seen a lunar eclipse will will note that that is very obviously um, curved. Now, Anaxagoras um, he didn't think the Earth was a sphere, and he thought that curve was the edge of the Earth's disk, or he might thought there might be other objects that were obscuring the light of the sun. Um, but it was a very profound um, breakthrough, I think, uh, in understanding how the um, how the cosmos is is constructed, and and uh, in the fourth uh, century BC, uh, an astronomer by, um, by the name of Eudoxus, um, he started to travel widely enough that he noticed that the the stars that you see in the sky vary depending on where you are, uh, and as you travel north or south, the stars that uh, you can see. Um, begin to uh, disappear um, behind one horizon and, and, and appear um, from the other horizon. Um, and uh, there was one star in particular which he noted, um, which he could see from uh, from Egypt, um, which he couldn't see from, from Athens. And this is actually Canopus, which is the, the second brightest star in the sky. So it was really very obvious that there was this sky, that if you, this star that... Um, if you were far enough south, you could see. Um, and an explanation for that was, was surely that, that the, the surface of the Earth um, is, is curved. Um, but I think it, it's a step further to say that the, the, uh, the, the Earth is a, is a globe. Um, and um, I spoke a little earlier about the, um, the, the variety of, of, of early Greek cosmology and uh, although Pythagoras wasn't the first person to say that the Earth, the earth was round, it's possible that one of his much later followers, um, somebody like Phileas, Philolaeus, who um, was an Italian um, Pythagorean, um, he had suggested a, a, a cosmos which probably, we can't be completely sure because the sources unfortunately are not totally explicit, but probably he imagined that uh, the cosmos did contain um a, a a a spherical earth although it was um uh, it, it was at that point simply another example of wild speculation it wasn't something um that could be could be proved it was something that could be perhaps just talked about so what then were sort of the steps needed to get from these observations um and these discussions to knowledge that the Earth is a globe? Well, um, we usually uh, would define knowledge um, following Plato um, as being a justified true belief. Um, And uh, it's it's ironic, really, that the very earliest mention that we have of the Earth being a globe um, is in um, one of Plato's dialogues, the Phaedo. And... uh, in that, he says that, um, well, he has Socrates say, because that obviously is, is, is how Plato tends to express himself, um, that he does believe that the Earth is a sphere. And then he goes on to describe it in this really fantastical way. Um, but I think even Plato at that point um, would have admitted that he didn't know that. 
he believed it to be true, perhaps, but uh, he probably, he certainly doesn't present uh, any evidence that, that we really need to justify that that belief. Um, now, to know something, obviously, you, you do have to believe it's true. Um, so you have to believe the Earth is round um, in order to know that it's round. Um, and you also need to be able to justify that belief, I think, with, with a reasoned argument and also with with. Um, with evidence, so we've just talked a little bit about the the evidence of uh, of eclipses, and and I think um, Plato's student Aristotle uh, was probably um, the first man who brought uh, all that evidence together and combined it uh, with a reasoned argument and turned it into um, the theory of the globe. Um, and what he did was. Um, when he, he was um, describing how he thought the universe worked, he placed the Earth in the centre, and uh, there was nothing very unusual about that, and Max Sagaros had already already said that. Um, but what was the most interesting thing about he did is he redefined uh, what we mean by the direction of downwards. Um, and if the Earth is flat, um, then down simply means um, something dropping uh, parallel to your legs, uh, and then if there was nothing in a way, it would just keep on falling to infinity. Um, now things stop falling because they because they 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 hit the earth. Um, but if you uh, consider some of the implications of that, it, it means that uh, there must be something supporting the earth, otherwise it would be um, falling as well. Um, the, uh, the philosopher um, Lucretius, the Roman philosopher Lucretius, um, he says that the universe must be um, infinite because otherwise all this falling matter would just collect at the bottom. Um, and Aristotle said, no, that's not actually true. The, the, the bottom of the universe isn't downwards um, beneath uh, a, a flat earth where everybody um, can agree about the direction of downers. It, the bottom of the universe is the centre of the universe. So everything does, um, everything falls towards the centre of um, of the universe, which is where the Earth is. So um, that means that all material is naturally going to collect into um, a sphere um, at the centre of the universe. Um, and it also means that uh, it doesn't matter what side of the Earth you're on, um, down is always going to be um, towards the centre of the universe, so it will feel the same wherever you are um, on the Earth. And that, that um, answers a very important question which uh, uh, proponents of the flat Earth have always been asking, which is, well, why don't we fall off? Um, and once Aristotle had a, had a theoretical justification for um, the Earth being a sphere, he was able to bring to bear... Um, Evidence to show uh, that that um, what we what we see uh, does actually um, explain um, some of the our, our observations, even though it does appear at first sight to be uh, counterintuitive. And he mentions um, that the the Earth, the shadow of the Earth, appears to be curved um, during during a lunar eclipse. And he makes the point that um, even if the the uh, the moon is low in the sky during the lunar eclipse, it still seems to be the same curve, um, and that would only be possible if the Earth um, was spherical um, rather than being disc shaped. And he says that you see different stars depending on whether you travel um, north or south. 
Um, and another um, piece of evidence he suggests is that um, uh, the Earth is is um, is spherical. Then obviously you can travel all the way around it. Um, the figure he suggests for the size of the Earth is is uh, uh, four hundred thousand stadia, uh, which is a bit big, probably about fifty percent too large. Um, but he says that it's interesting that you you find elephants um, both. Uh, in the far east of the known world and the far west of the known world. Um, and that suggests that um, the uh, the land may well um, connect up on the other side so that this population of elephants is, is all, um, all part of one population rather than um, the... Uh, uh, there being two two separate places where, where elephants had, had first appeared, and that obviously is is, is uh, an argument that we wouldn't uh, agree with. But uh, he was absolutely right to say that in theory um, you can uh, sail all the way around the world. So how then, obviously by implication, a lot of the discussions and debates you've been telling us about um, happen kind of in narrow circles amongst lineages of um, research and discussion, um, very much kind of around education and philosophy. How did the idea of the globe move from those sorts of circles to being popularly accepted? Where did that happen? When did that happen? Why was it in that place? Well, I think still looking just at the the Greek world and and, and perhaps um, the the, um, the the Roman world, um, I think it was it was a much slower process than than is generally assumed, um, and, and there does seem to be this this assumption that you know by the fourth century everybody in Greece knew that the Earth is a sphere and it simply ceased to be controversial. I don't think that that's true. Um, at all, there were there were some schools of philosophers uh, who accepted that that the Earth was a sphere. The Stoics, for instance, they um, adopted the Aristotelian picture of of the universe um, in in some very um, um, very they, they adopted the Aristotelian picture of, of the universe. Um, pretty much also with with a with a with a few exceptions, uh, including that the Earth was a sphere. At the centre of the universe, and another school of philosophers, the, the Epicureans, disagreed. Um, they said that the the universe is um, infinite, so it can't possibly have a centre, um, and also that there's all sorts of um, worlds floating around a bit in, in all sorts of shapes and sizes, um, and that our our world um, is constructed, I suppose, a, a little bit like one of those snow globes that um, you sometimes see at Christmas. Uh, we're all living on the flat um, surface underneath, and um, the the sky is a is a is a dome over the top of us, and and uh, the stars and and planets and sun and moon are all floating around in 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 the sky, not very far from us at all, um, like uh, the the snowflakes in in a snow dome. Um, and this argument um, really continued for, for for quite a long time. Lucretius, uh, who I mentioned earlier, the the Roman follower. Uh, of Epicurus, he um, he was also um, uh, someone who thought that the Earth was flat. In fact, he agreed with with Epicurus on on, on absolutely everything, um, and uh, was was roundly uh, teased by uh, Cicero um, for for taking that um, that view. The Epicureans were, but Greek astronomers they they uh, did appear to accept the globe really quite quickly. 
um, by 200 BC, uh, Aristosthenes, had, uh, who was an Alexandrian, um, had made a pretty accurate estimate of the Earth's size. He got a circumference right um, by probably within about 10% of it, it, its, its true size by um, measuring um, the, the length of shadows um, of, the, of the sun uh, of, uh, being cast by a gnomon um, in, in Egypt, uh, which, which enabled him to determine the, the, the curvature of the Earth and hence, hence the size of the Earth. Um, but I think uh, it's, it's quite difficult to trace um, when this became popular knowledge. And I think it's probably true to say that if we are talking about um, non-literate people who obviously would have been the majority of the population in, in, in the Roman Empire, um, they may really not have... Uh, realised the earth was a globe for really quite a long time uh, until, for example, the Romans started issuing coins that showed the globe on the coin um, as, as uh, um, a symbol of um, the god's power or, or um, the emperor's power. Or we start seeing um, the idea of the globe appearing um, in, in, in popular, um, in popular literary, li- literature and, and poetry. Um, but that's quite hard to trace uh, and um, unfortunately, um, in Latin, um, the word orbis, which is often used to describe the Earth, um, can either mean disc or globe. So you don't always know what people are talking about. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. If we move on chronologically then from what we've been discussing so far, um, to what extent does that knowledge, especially amongst the mass population, about the globe increase as we move from the Romans into what we might still call the Middle Ages? Well, during during the Middle Ages, I think that... uh, if we're talking about Western Europe, um, there was uh, um, a period um, following the, the the fall of the Western European, the Western Roman Empire, um, when uh, quite a lot of um, the knowledge that had been gathered was it was in danger of being lost, and um, uh, there were uh, certainly scholars around in 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 uh, um, the fifth sixth century who who made an effort to make sure that. Um, textbooks, for example, which which have been used to uh, to teach students about the world were were preserved. 
Um, but I think uh, it's not until, in my view, um, around about 700 that um, knowledge of the globe becomes widespread again um, in in Europe, 700 AD. Um, and I think that the credit for that probably belongs to um, the Venerable Bede, uh, who, uh, as well as writing his famous ecclesiastical history of the English people, um, wrote on numerous other topics. And in particular, he was uh, very, very concerned about the calendar and the keeping of time. Um, and he realised that uh, in order to um, accurately uh, reflect that, you needed to um, build the fact that the Earth is a globe into your calculations. Um, and he, uh, in, a, in a book on the, uh, the right date to celebrate Easter, among other things, included a description uh, of how we know the Earth is, um, is a sphere, uh, which he took from the Roman writer, um, the Elder Pliny. And that book was very widely circulated during the 8th century. Um, and after that time, I think it's probably fair to say that we, uh, we don't find any educated people uh, in the European Middle Ages who, who, thought that the, uh, who thought the Earth was flat. And there's quite a lot of evidence for that. Um, there's uh, paintings um, and, and, and diagrams in, in books that show the universe as, as a sphere with a spherical Earth at its centre. Uh, textbooks um, explain the concept um, very, very clearly. Um, it appears in popular literature. It's in Dante. Um, uh, the Troubadours sang about it, um, it, it perhaps indirectly, but there's one, one story where, that... Uh, um, Alexander the Great was um, presented with an, with a, an apple, uh, and he took it as a symbol of the the world that um, he was about to conquer. Um, and that well, that's what people in the Middle Ages saw. Alexander the Great himself almost certainly thought the Earth was flat. Um, and the orb that was given to kings at their coronation um, that's a, a a sphere because it represents the Earth with a cross on top, which represents uh, uh, the power. Uh, of God under which the king rules. And, of course, we still uh, do that um, in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. In fact, we, uh, we did it um, in, in uh, May this year uh, when Charles III was presented with just, just such an orb um, at his own coronation. Uh, so by the time you get to the time of Columbus, uh, the, the question of the shape of the earth just was not a controversial matter in Western Europe. One of the interesting things um, in the book that you discuss is the fact that nearly all of the sacred texts of the world's religions were written before we get to this point you've just brought us up to, when it was well-known and not particularly controversial. How did these sacred texts, how did the people reading and interpreting and using these sacred texts um, sort of reinterpret them or make use of them once the idea of the globe becomes more widespread? Well, I think um, it, it's, a, it's a principle of, of, uh, of how to read uh, books, books like the, the, the Quran and, and the Bible and, and, and the Rig Veda, um, that they are uh, accommodated to uh, be comprehensible by ordinary people. That's the point of them. Is 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 that, that the teaching that they contain is is um, is so important? It, it shouldn't just be accessible to scholars. Um, and so they do all uh, assume that the uh, that the Earth is flat because that was the view of common people at the time. And 
Um, even if uh, some of the authors of those texts, for example, perhaps um, St. Luke in the New Testament, um, were aware that the, the Earth was in fact a globe, it wasn't something that they were um, going to make very much of. Um, but uh, as knowledge of, of the globe became more widespread, uh, it became um, quite permissible for people to, I think, interpret the, um, the these, these writings um, in a way that was compatible uh, with um, the Earth being, being round. Um, and that's always been, I think, the case with, with uh, the way that um, these, um, these texts have been interpreted even by, by, by quite conservative authors. Um, for example, um, the Quran talks about the Earth being laid out like a carpet, um, and that obviously implies that, that, that the Earth is flat. But when um, the, the globe became uh, better known in, in Baghdad during the 8th century AD, so sort of uh, um, over a century after the Quran had, had been written, um, there doesn't seem to have been any controversy uh, from from the religious side about that, I and mean, people continue to disagree for for a long time afterwards. But um, even extremely uh, conservative Muslim theologians were were happy to say that when uh, the Quran says that that the Earth is laid out like a carpet, that is simply a reflection of the fact that the Earth is very very big. So um, if you are uh, a human being standing on the earth, um, it looks flat, which, which it does. That's just, that's just common sense. But it doesn't mean to say um, that when you uh, look at the earth as a whole, um, then uh, uh, it is anything, anything other than spherical. Um, and, and Christian bishops uh, were, were happy to do the same thing. There, there's a, a reference in the Old Testament to the earth being, being held up by pillars, um, and uh, as early as the fourth century AD, uh, uh, Christian, uh, the Bishop of Milan, um, Ambrose, uh, assures his uh, his congregation that that they should not be taking that literally; that it's a figurative description of of how the world is upheld by by God's power. That said, um, there are always exceptions, um, and and I think the most most interesting exception. That, exception particularly in in the christian world uh is this idea which which became current uh in 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 fourth and fifth centuries um that the earth is shaped like um the tabernacle the tabernacle uh which was the uh the tent uh, that was erected um in the desert uh by the hebrews as they were fleeing from from egypt to the promised land um and uh John Chrysostom and other influential theologians at around that time, um, they they followed this tabernacle model and they um, they rejected the idea that that the earth um, the earth was a globe, um, and that uh, was something which was fiercely contested by um, other Christian thinkers at the time. Um, most famously, in the sixth century AD, um, John Philoponus, who was a um, a very uh, important Christian philosopher in in Alexandria who uh, argued vehemently that uh, the the Earth uh, is um, is a sphere, and that people who say that it's shaped like a tabernacle are, are seriously um, misinterpreting uh, what it is that the Bible is trying to say. But these debates did co- continue for for a very very long time um, in the seventeenth and eighteenth century. 
um, we still find uh, discussions of how it's possible uh, to reconcile uh, traditional cosmology of the flat Earth uh, with um, the Earth being a sphere. Um, and ideas included that, well, the Earth was once upon a time flat, but nowadays it's become spherical, or that there are two Earths. There's the flat one and there is a spherical one, which accounts for the astronomical observations um, that uh, at first uh, convinced people that the Earth was a sphere in the first place. Thank you for taking us on that sort of highlights tour, I suppose, of how different um, religious traditions thought about these things um, and interpreted them. In a similar sense, uh, though, not to offend anyone who's religious with any of the religions we've talked about, but in a similar sense, um, I'd love to think about uh, how the idea of the earth, concepts of the earth, what is it shaped like, how that's looked at by some authors that do some other world building, um, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Terry Pratchett. Um, what can we sort of consider and think about concepts of the shape of the earth when we look at this group um, of authors? Well, of course, C.S. Lewis and, and, and Tolkien were both extremely devout Christians, um, and they were uh, also uh, completely uh, familiar with the, the tradition of the Bible and different um, traditions of, of, of myth and legend. Uh, so I do find it really interesting that uh, although C.S. Lewis um, in, in his, his lectures uh, at Oxford made very clear to his students that people in the Middle Ages all knew that the earth was a sphere, when he came to create Narnia, he made it flat. Um, and I think that's because he thought there was something uh, primeval um, about, uh, about the flat earth, that um, although it's not true in our world, uh, it's uh, it it perhaps is 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 true in, in an ideal vision um, of, of of what a world ought to be like. He just wanted to make Narnia uh, different, and it's a lovely um, exchange uh, in in Lewis's um, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, where the children who've been tra- uh, transported from our world are talking to Prince Caspian. Uh, and Prince Caspian, of course, sees it from Narnia. He thinks the earth is flat. Um, and uh, the children let on to him that, that their world is a spherical. And, of course, Caspian thinks this is the most amazing thing ever. Uh, and how, how incredible it must be to live on a world which is which is spherical rather than flat. Um, and, and the children, um, they burst his bubble a bit and says, well, actually, it's still very ordinary when you're there. Um, and I, I, I love the way that Lewis... Um, really is playing with it, with his audience about, about what is fantastic and what isn't. It's really just what you're familiar with. Uh, and Tolkien also, I think, he he had that same idea of the flat earth being primeval because um, in his um, in, in his books, um, Middle Earth um, is at the time that the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit is is um, is set. Um, on a spherical world, um, but that had happened uh, at a particular time in history um, when uh, evil men from the the island Numenor had tried to uh, invade the 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 land of the elves, um, and the elves had prayed to be delivered. And um, as a result of that, uh, um, 
the 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 god of of, of Tolkien's world had opened up this great chasm um, and taken the Elvish lands out of the circle of the world and turned the rest of the world into this sphere. So there was no way back. Uh, and, and again, you, you you just get this idea from from both of these authors that that um, somehow a flat world, flat world might not be right, but it is somehow better. <laughs> Um, Pratchett, of course, uh, he's uh, he has the disc world, um, and uh, I, I was fascinated during the uh, the research I was doing for this book to um, come across the, the Indian antecedents of, of, of this idea, um, because there was a there was an Indian astronomer in the ninth century uh, called Lalar, and he uh, uh, wrote. Uh, a, a, a guide to astronomy in which he made lots of remarks about how incredibly irritated he seemed to be over people who said that the earth was flat and um, was supported by a turtle or um, uh, an elephant or some such as that. Um, and that's obviously something that, that Pratchett, uh, in, in his um, uh, attempts to, to find things that, that make the disc world uh, memorable um, picked up on, and, and he combined the two, of course, with with uh, the the turtle uh, having a, a coterie of four elephants on its back, and the, the world sits on on the back of that. Um, I don't know if there was anything terribly profound about what Pratchett was 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 trying to do with that idea, except that he he he, uh, he thought it was a lot of fun. Fair enough. Um, that is what you get to do when you write fiction. So fair enough. But thank you for um, taking us through those things as well. And it's a really interesting thing to bring into this conversation. I was certainly surprised, pleasantly so, to see them included. Um, and on that theme of surprise, you sort of mentioned briefly that uh, you came across things that surprised you in the research. I was wondering if there's any other things you came across um, that were surprising to you. Well, I think one one theme that that has surprised me um, throughout all the all the research I did and talking about it with people afterwards is is the amount of um, defensiveness there is about um, about the flat Earth, um, and uh, even though it's simply you know not controversial that once upon a time everybody thought the Earth was flat, uh, people do find it difficult to accept that um, the particular people in the past, perhaps who they care most about, believe that as well. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating, for example, in it, uh, pre-modern China um, was uh, very much a, 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 a flat earth society, even though they had a, um, a very sophisticated um, astronomical uh, system as well, which enabled them to produce very accurate um, calendars, um, but you can read an entire book about um, uh, pre-modern Chinese philosophy or cosmology, and it will not mention that once. Uh, and it was actually quite difficult to find um, the relevant uh, sources, which, unfortunately, as I can't read classical Chinese, did have to be um, in translation. It just did make it extremely clear. Uh, and I was very grateful to some of the the, uh, the authors who who'd, who'd done that translation work and who had um, also uh, set out the the explanation of why the Chinese thought the world um, was like that. Um, and I mentioned Lucretius a, a, a couple of times, and um, 
like a lot of people, um, I, I'd, I'd, um, I'd read The Swerve uh, by Stephen Greenblatt and um, I'd read other um, things about Lucretius in the past and none of those books give the slightest hint that Lucretius thought the earth was flat. If you read uh, his, um, his, his book on the nature of things, it's very clear from book one uh, that that's exactly what he thinks. Um, and yet uh, people who claim to be experts on Lucretius flat out deny it. Uh, and I, I just found that that was that was um, that was really very surprising indeed. Um, why is it something that somebody's so concerned about that someone who lived um, twenty one hundred years ago um, didn't share um, our our knowledge of, of, of the way that the uh, uh, the cosmos is constructed? And I think this is possibly something to do with the fact that we do take uh, quite rightly a, a very dim view of modern flat earthers who. Um, uh, don't have uh, the excuse that somebody who uh, was brought up in a in a society where um, uh, this kind of knowledge just wasn't wasn't taught um, or, or known, um, and, 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 I, and I think it, it I, I think it's very important though that that, that as historians we're, we're able to uh, you know slake off our uh, what seems common sense to us in in um, in, in twenty twenty three, and actually try and understand how the world looked to people who didn't know what we like, uh, and in doing that, not judge them for being ignorant just because um, they hadn't had the the education um, that we got in um, the this day and age. Um, I mean, I can absolutely guarantee uh, that uh, if any of us um, listening today were uh, born uh, in a society where the globe uh, wasn't known, then they would all think the Earth was flat. Nobody was ever going to figure it out for themselves that it isn't. That's a really interesting thing to find surprising. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. As a final question then, um, the book is obviously just out, so it feels mildly ridiculous to ask you, but is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next? Well, I think the thing I ended up enjoying most about writing The Globe was that it was an opportunity to write a, a truly global history of science. Most histories of science um, are uh, about one particular part of the world, most usually, of course, um, uh, the West, if we're talking about modern science. Um, but it's very few uh, books which uh, have covered science across uh you know the whole of of of, of uh, um, whole of the world over a long a long time span. But I was able to talk about ancient Babylon, Egypt, um, Persia, India, and China, uh, the the Muslim world, um, as, as well as um, as well as Europe and and, and, and ancient Greece. So um, I'm very much hoping that uh, at some time in the future I, I will uh, have an opportunity to take that a little bit further and and, and uh, see if it's. Uh, possible to uh, write a, uh, a a global history of science that tells tells the history of science as as, as, a, as a as a single sort of coherent narrative and and, and story uh, which takes in the whole globe rather than just being you know completely eurocentric in its output but uh, uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be possible yet because the the variety of traditions which I've come across has been absolutely astounding. Well, we shall be very curious to see. And in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Globe, How the Earth Became Round. James, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
Thank you very much indeed for having me. It's been a great pleasure. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.